This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by my favorite guest of all time, past, present, and future, the rabbi herself, Rabbi Erica Gerson. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. So you are episode number 70 because uh, 70 is the Jewish number of uh, completion. I think that was Cory Booker's idea. I was just listening to your podcast with him. That was Cory's idea. That was Cory's idea. I'm I'm the rabbi's husband. Yeah, 70 is the number of completion. Of course, we're not complete. We're going to keep going because the Jewish story, it never ends. It's never complete. But this is number 70. So how, how much more appropriate than to have it with the rabbi herself? Well, I'm, I'm honored to be, to be on here. You have had amazing people on so far. So I, I hope I can live up to the reputation that the podcast has already developed. Oh, well, thank you. So we're going to be discussing Genesis 32, which is the changing of Jacob's name to Israel. Exactly. Okay. So tell us, why did you choose uh, this passage of everything in the Torah and the uh, Jewish Bible? Okay, great. So we'll get into it. But just before we even get to the text, The reason that I love this is I think it's really the essence of what it is to be Jewish. And it's a text that comes up almost immediately when I teach introduction to Judaism classes or have conversations with people about what does it mean to be Jewish. And I just love that our name is Yisrael, the people who wrestle with God. And so in order to unpack that, you really have to go back to the story to appreciate its origin. Good. So why don't you tell the story? Okay, great. So it's hard to appreciate without a lot of background. And I don't want to assume what people are coming to this podcast with, because of course, we want to welcome people with all levels of background. So if this is a repeat, just bear with us and I'll catch people up a little bit. So our main character here is Jacob. And the backstory is that Jacob is returning to Canaan after spending 20 years with his father-in-law's house, um, Laban, and he's preparing to see his brother Esau. But in order to understand that, you have to go back even a little further. So there's a famous story where he has wronged his brother. He's stolen, he's stolen um, a blessing that should have been his. And so he's worried now. He's, he, went, he went fleeing for his life 20 years ago, and now he is for the first time going to be potentially reunited with him in Canaan. So he's preparing to see him. Um, really interestingly, if we go back, one of the things that I like to do when I read a Parsha is always flip back one Parsha earlier and make sure there's nothing I'm missing. Because the parshas were the separations of all the different weekly portions were established later. And very often there's an important nugget that happens just before that. So if you open up to this week's parsha, whatever it is, you really can miss something. So I was um, really intrigued when you go back, you actually hear that he is, he realizes that angels are accompanying him before our parsha that we get to. And then it continues on and it says that in preparation for getting closer to Esau, he sends messages uh, essentially of peace to him to let him know that he comes in a positive way. But nonetheless, we hear that he's frightened and anxious, which is really interesting because the Torah doesn't usually tell us about people's emotions. It leaves it for us to figure that out. So they want to make sure we know that he's feeling really vulnerable, really frightened and anxious to 
meet with Esau, uh, from whom he had fled for his life before that. And he's particularly anxious because Esau is coming with 400 men. So he then says a heartfelt prayer, which is really beautiful. It's not the focus of what we're doing here, but I would, I would encourage you to take a look at that prayer. Um, and it's also really interesting. We might get to it that there's another prayer that he says earlier in his life. That's, that's a very different take on, on prayer. But this one is a really heartfelt prayer to God, thanking God for everything he's had so far, that he's not worthy, and then just being really worried about being protected and sustained through this dangerous moment. Um, he then sends messengers with waves of gifts for Esau. It's really smart psychological thing. He sends a wave. He tells them, say, say, I'm coming right behind you. And then we'll send more gifts and more gifts. And then the final thing that happens before our pivotal moment is that he divides up his family and his possessions, which of course is a lot of livestock for safekeeping. And he escorts them across the Yabuk river. And then he crosses back over the river and he goes back to the other side. And here's where we come in at Genesis 32, 25. So I'll just read the actual text. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he wrenched Jacob's hip at its socket, so that the socket of his hip was strained as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for dawn is breaking. But he answered, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Said the other, what is your name? He replied, Jacob. Said he, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, and that's Yisrael, for you have striven with beings divine and human and have prevailed. Jacob asked, pray, tell me your name. But he said, you must not ask my name. And he took leave of him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, meaning I have seen the divine being face to face, yet my life has been preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping on his hip. That is why the children of Israel to this day do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the socket of the hip since Jacob's hip socket was wrenched at the thigh muscle. That's right. Okay, so tell us about the significance of Jacob having his name changed. Now, one of the interesting things here is in what you just read, 3227, Jacob says he's winning the wrestling match all night long, suffering an injury, and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me, teaching us that a Jew does not leave a struggle without a blessing. We will leave every struggle with a blessing. And then he says, what's your name? Jacob, but he doesn't get a blessing. So what do you make of that? I would argue that, that it is a blessing to have his name changed to Yisrael. This is his moment of transformation. So the real question here is, what do we care about a name? How much does it matter? And the Torah is very clear that names matter tremendously. So to go from Jacob, who, who is named, uh, if we go back to his birth story, that's where he gets his name, and he's grabbing at the heel of his twin brother. And so the etymology of Yaakov is, is from the word heel. There's other some people say it has to do with supplanting. Some people look at the meaning of the word heel as twisting and whatever else, but that's his original identity. And there are so many stories about Jacob in his earlier years and, and how that haunts him. That's who he is. He's the one who's reaching after his twin, who's supplanting his twin and all the complexities that, that come along with that, who's running away from responsibilities. Of course, heel can also be thought of as a part of the foot and you're, and you're fleeing from things. And this blessing is that he's learning to stop running and he's being given this name as a recognition that he's come to a new place. And I think if there's, if there's one blessing that a lot of people would ask for in life, it's the blessing to start over. That's right. And uh, well, that, that's a, a beautiful point you made that, that the blessing is stop running. And um, our friend and um, our son's uh, sometime late night chess.com partner, Rabbi David Wolpe, says that he did get a blessing. And in fact, 
it's the fundamental Jewish blessing. And David says he must have gotten a blessing because he says, I will not let you go and let you bless me, but he let him go. So what's the blessing? Although one's not given, it's the blessing is the ability to transform yourself. He got the blessing of self-transformation, which David said is the great blessing of the Jew. So he got the ultimate blessing. He was able to transform himself. And that blessing is now our blessings. Just as you said, we can all transform ourselves. We can go by being he who runs to he who does something else. Yeah. And I totally agree. And I love that. And another piece that I love about this whole story and that really draws me into it is that his name becomes Yisrael, but immediately after this, his name reverts back to Jacob. And throughout the rest of the text, when we hear from from Jacob, they're used interchangeably. And I'd love to say that there's some particular meaning to when it's Jacob and when it's Israel. But if you look, that's really not the case. He really just owns both names. Sometimes it will use them as a parallel in a more poetic line. Sometimes he just starts as one and later in the paragraph is the other. So I think that's a lesson for us too, that we can transform, we can reach a new stage in our development, but what happened and who we were before is always with us. And we always balance all these different things. One of the things that I know your listeners have probably heard from you before is about having multiple faces. You, you like to share that message. And I think it's a really important one here. So um, Panim, and I was, I was listening uh, to Rabbi Wolpe's recording recently, and I, and I love what you guys got into, which is, so panim is, is a plural for face, but that is the Hebrew word for face. It's a plural construct. There is no singular way to say face, but it does mean one face. And one of the things that I learned listening to you guys was, was the point that there is a special Hebrew construct for two faces, but this is, it, it's not what's used for the word for face in Hebrew. It is the plural. And so everyone has these multiple facets to their personality. And so Jacob can have this experience of transformation but that doesn't mean that everything that, that happened to him before this never happened or that it doesn't continue to shape who he is. And I think that's just so true in our own lives. When I think about my life and, and how many identities have I had already, and I'm only in my 40s and God willing, I'll have more iterations and more names that I get to add to myself, whether it's mother, friend, sister, daughter, a rabbi, all these things. I'm always going to be the rabbi's husband. You will always be the rabbi's husband. I don't know what, what title will be next, but, but you have many titles too, right? Sometimes you're, sometimes you're on, a, on a call as a philanthropist, and, but, but you know, you, we, we all have multiple names. And I think that Jacob is a, is a great lesson for us that you can have a major transformation, but be real and know that, that your past is still a part of you too. And elevate that past. I mean, it's, you know, to take, it, take that, an example of a, a drug addict who decides that he or she wants to transform himself. So of course it's good that he transformed himself, but he transforms himself. He's no longer a drug addict, but now perhaps he can take what he suffered with and use it to help others who are going through the same struggle. Yeah, I think that, and that's, that is exactly how you wrestle a blessing out of a, a struggle. And one of the things, the reason that I didn't end the paragraphs that I was reading any earlier is I think a key piece of this story is that he leaves with a limp that's with him for the rest of his life. He's not perfect. He has a limp, but he's also not imperfect. So Jacob always has this with him. And I think that's a very realistic way to approach all of our challenges. We don't want in Judaism to look at the hard things in life and say, well, you know, it was really all for the best. And of course we had the Holocaust, but it was okay because it was so great. We got Israel. That's not how it works. There's pain and there's suffering, whether it's personal, whether it's communal. And we acknowledge that and we acknowledge the pain that it brings, but we still find a way to also find the blessing. And that's what Jacob did. That's right. And we, we, we take the pain with us. The pain, the pain is still the pain. We take it with us and God willing, we're able to transform ourselves. And part of the transformation is elevating that pain so that it can be a, a, a blessing for others. I believe in, in AA, you, one will say, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. You wouldn't say, I used to be an alcoholic. You'd say, I am, but I'm, I'm here. I've transformed myself. and I'm going to be someone different and someone better, but I'm going to recognize who I was and use that to help others and to help myself. 
Yeah, I think that's also a, a common uh, way of describing yourself with an eating disorder, that you're, you're in recovery, but it's still a part of who you are. And I, I agree with you. I've seen, of course, that J- Jacob, it's not like Jacob's never used again. Jacob's used all the time. But people who've tried to identify when and why he's used as Jacob and when and why he's used as Israel, there's no consistency to it. There's no theory that seems to work. There's no place in his life where he's Jacob. And then you can guess, well, he'll be in Israel in that place. It just seems to be mixed together. He's Jacob and he's Israel. Right. I think the name Israel, the wrestling with God, implies the, the dynamism of his life. And one of the things that I love about it, and the reason that I think it's important to bring up, especially to people new to Judaism or, or just not that comfortable in their Judaism, is that's a lot of what it is to be Jewish. As long as you're still wrestling, then you're doing the right thing. So you can be, you can have moments where you're feeling connected to God, moments where you're feeling convinced that there is a God, moments when you're unsure. But as long as you're still in the process, as long as Jacob was still sometimes touching with his Israel side, then you're doing the right thing according to Judaism. I think it's a great point. So if someone ever said, well, uh, I'm not sure about being Jewish because I'm not sure if there's a God, the answer is, sounds to me like you're wrestling with God. Right, right. When people are asked to describe what does it mean to be Jewish, that there are three pillars that we go through. There's God, Torah and Israel. This is the, actually a construct that I remember talking through with uh, Rabbi Matthew Goritz, who's also been one of your guests. And we were talking about how do you even begin to unpack what does it mean to be Jewish? And there are so many different ways to be Jewish. And as you know, Mark, there's no real set of beliefs that you have to have. You have to do, you have to listen, you have to learn, you have to think. But when it comes to the God piece, so when we talk, when we talk to, to people about being a part of the, of the Jewish people, there's the God, there's Torah and Israel. So Torah, we know you have to be learning and Israel is connecting to the land and the people. But the God piece is a little tricky because people coming from other faiths are like, okay, tell me, what do I have to believe? And we're like, well, it's a little little more complicated than that. You have to be wrestling. You have to be wrestling with God, with the idea of God, with what it might mean for there to be different possibilities of something godly in life. But we can't tell you exactly what that has to be. So is, is the implication there that the idea of Jewish piety is that the pious person is one who wrestles with God and one who says, I'm pious and therefore I'm comfortable with everything at all times? The answer is, you're actually not being pious. I think so. That reminds me of Noah. And when we think about one of the questions that came to my mind as I was studying this in preparation was, so wrestling with God. So who else wrestles with God? He's the one who gets his name for it. But we have other characters. So Abraham, I know you love the story of Abraham with Sodom and Gomorrah, and he shows us an example of what it can look like to wrestle with God. There's Moses who is saying, blot me out of your Torah if you're going to follow this path that you're suggesting after the sin of the golden calf. And then we have, as a counterexample, as you just said, someone is not so pious because they're not standing up. And that might be Noah, who, who never argued with God. And uh, as we've talked about Jonah. Jonah never argues with God. Jonah runs from God, but he never argues with God, which I think is his great flaw. That's actually a a great point you just raised that perhaps uh, the great flaw of Noah and Jonah is perhaps in one very real respect, they're not good Jews because they don't wrestle with God. God tells Noah, I'm going to destroy the world. And Noah effectively says, well, how many cubits do you want the ark to be? (laughs) Yeah. And God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city. And Jonah has lots of very good reasons for not wanting to go. And he articulates none of them. He doesn't wrestle with God. Well, he doesn't wrestle with God directly like Abraham does, like Moses does. He may have in his interior life, but not directly. And I think part of his responsibility is uh, as a Jew, as, as Israel, as one of the children of Israel is to wrestle and to wrestle directly. And God loves it. When, when people act like Israel, when people act like the transformed Jacob, God loves it. We see that over and over again after Jacob. So Abraham comes before Jacob. But after that, we're going to see, as you said, Moses 
who says, blot me out of your Torah. When he disagrees with God, blot me out of your Torah. It's the most audacious statement ever. It's a ever. great line. It's a great line. It's a great moment. Great line. We see that daughters of the Lopakad, who argue with Moses and with God, when they say it's not fair that we should not be able to inherit just because we're women. And we see it again with the uh, men who are ritually impure and can't celebrate Pesach. And they say it's not right. We shouldn't be able to celebrate Pesach just because we're in a temporary state of ritual impurity. And God loves every argument. And we know he loves it because he grants them everything they want and then some. Yeah. And I think on a, on a more uh, everyday kind of level, it's a lot of fun, believe it or not, to be a Hebrew school teacher. And the conversations that come up can really blow your mind, even in the simplest moments. But one of the wow. greatest joys is the wrestling with God that happens so naturally for children. I remember myself as Very a Hebrew true. school kid, we had Rabbi Jim Prosnett. He, his son actually, I think has gone on also to become a rabbi now. He was the young associate so they would, or assistant rabbi. So they would send him into our classroom and everybody would say, we don't believe in God, prove that God exists. And like, if we behave, then they would say, okay, then we'll call on the rabbi and you can have some time with the rabbi to argue about this. And it was so great that they encouraged this. And I think it's really, it's so natural for kids to say, well, how can there be a God or how can God have this? Or how, you know, I don't understand because I see this suffering in the world and I see this injustice in the world. And that is being a good Jew to look at the world and say, Hey God, I, I need to speak to you. I saw a, a, some memes coming up for Yom Kippur this year. And people said, you know, I have a lot that I want to talk to God about this year. I have some questions for God about how this year went. And so that's really Jewish, I think. And, and I, that's why I love everyone knowing, I think it's so empowering to know that we are Am Yisrael. We are B'nai Yisrael. We're the people of Israel. We're the children of Israel. We have the inheritance of this mantle that we are to wrestle with God. And that's what it means to be a good Jew. I think that's exactly right. And, 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 and so often the entree point to a difficult conversation is the permission to have that conversation is to say, you actually won't offend me if we have this conversation. In fact, I want to hear it from you. That's what probably all difficult conversations need. And that's what God's doing here. God's saying, you want to have a difficult conversation with me? I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to call you wrestling with God. Okay. That's your invitation. I can't do better than that. Your name is wrestling with God. You want to wrestle with God? That's your name. And as you said previously, Names in the Torah are dispositive. They're not just a description. They, well, they're, they're more of a moral description than, than just an appellation. So that in, in your name is wrestling with God. That's the ultimate permission to wrestle with God. In fact, that's what you are. And that's what I expect you to do, God's saying. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better. It's an obligation. It's who we are. And we were gifted the name to go along with Jacob. We didn't get the name changed with the wrestling, but it's been gifted to us as the people that inherited his tradition. That's right. Well, um, Erica, the, the concluding question, as you know, well, as always, thank you for, I mean, this is what we do in our home every night. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, thank you for almost 13 years of such discussions. And of course, this one on the rabbi's husband. But now we'll go to the concluding question, which always goes from one sacred text of the uh, Torah to um, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And Andre Malroux says, it's first page of the book. He said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown up person. So there are so many ways I could ask you the, the question, which is what have you learned? So I'll ask it this way. Over the last 13 years, you've engaged quite a lot, probably as much as any rabbi in a very deep way with uh, Christians. So what are two things that you've learned from your, our engagement with uh, our friends of the Christian sweat faith? Oh, that's, that's a great question. It's definitely been a joy of the past decade or so to 
have these experiences of being in really deep partnership with Christians in a couple of different aspects of our lives. So as a board member of African Mission Healthcare, which um, Mark and his college roommate founded, it's been a a really life-changing experience to get to know Christian medical missionaries who've dedicated their lives to serving the African poor. I've learned really countless things from them, but of the individual doctors that we've had the opportunity to meet and, and the doctors and their spouses and their children, one of the things that's really touched my heart is the way that they all describe being open to God's call. And it's crazy stories. It's not like some pie in the sky things. And one of them, I remember he was talking about driving a car and hitchhiking and that led him on his path. But each one of them has an openness in their heart to really accept the possibility that God is calling them for a particular mission. And when they say what it means to, to be living their faith, it's not as we, as we Westerners often think, or as I at least used to think, which was that they just want to talk to someone about what does it mean to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That's really not what it's about. They say this is an opportunity for them to live as they believe Jesus would have. And of course, the, the Jesus piece is not my piece, but the idea of being called to live a particular life in a way that God would find godly is really touching to me. And the sacrifices that each one of them make and the fulfillment that they nonetheless get from these extraordinary lives that they live in, usually in poverty, um, with extraordinary challenging circumstances without the basics that we might consider necessities is uh, very moving to me and very impactful for me to be able to help fund their work, but also just to be inspired by what God might be calling me to do in my life and being open to that possibility of a really personal calling. The second thing I'll say is our experience that, that you and I have both had partnering with Christian evangelicals who have a deep and abiding love for Israel. And we've been able to do that through a bunch of different channels, um, through our partnerships at Christian Broadcast Network, but also very much so with our work with Eagle's Wings and Bishop Robert Stearns. And again, I've, I've gained so much from them. I think watching their genuine love for Israel has taught me a lot. First of all, it's taught me that the hype in the world is not the first thing that you should believe. You really always have to dig deeper. Unfortunately, in the Jewish community, there's a lot of mistrust of Christian evangelicals. And a lot of people's first instinct is to look for the negatives and look for the places where we clash with each other. And I think that's a terrible way to go through life. So that's been in a lesson in and of itself to realize that you can have meaningful, holy ground where you overlap with people and can be in service. And it doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. So it's been really an honor to partner with them. But also, again, similar to the missionaries that we've met who do the work in Africa, these guys are really open to the possibility of living and accepting the words from the Torah, the words from the Bible as meaningful in a daily way, in a concrete way in their life. So when they talk about blessing Israel and feeling blessed, they really live that and experience that in a way that I think Jews are much less comfortable with. And that's opened up possibilities for me to, again, feel like God has a role in my everyday life that that there are blessings in our everyday life because of the interactions that we come to and the way that we, well, for them, that they, that they bless the Jewish people, but for me in the way that I can interact with them and also do God's will and feel blessed because I'm doing God's will. Beautiful. Yes. I mean, yes, for, for them, there's, and one thing we've learned from them is that there's a, there's nothing abstract about faith. Yeah, exactly. Well put. It's all very personal and very practical and, just like there's nothing abstract about a marriage when you're in it, there might be something abstract before you get in it. You might have certain theories, but there's nothing abstract about it when you're in it. There's nothing abstract about faith when 
one, like they all have, give their lives to God. Yeah, but at least the Jewish communities that I'm in, it's all abstract. Like we're, we're so uncomfortable with, with doing exactly what you said, with really nailing it down into the concrete of like, I am doing this because God wants me to do this and this is what the outcome is going to be. I mean, of course, it's not transactional, but having that experience of feeling that your life is more full, um, which is another way of thinking of your life as blessed, your life is more full because you are fulfilling what God has asked you to do. That's a really powerful experience to be willing to admit or notice or, or describe in that way. Right. And, and one of the many things we've learned from our Christian friends and have made us better Jews, one is um, we've talked just now and, and often personally about how the, the Torah, which of course is the Jewish Bible, tells us so many times that we are to walk with God, we are to walk ahead of God, we are to walk in God's ways. The halakha means walking. Judaism is all about walking with God. And one of the many things that we've learned from our Christian friends is that when you walk with God, he's there all day, every day, wanting to walk with you. And when you do it, it can completely transform your life and deeply enrich your lives, as, as you said it has for our Christian missionary friends and the other um, evangelical pastors we've been blessed to know. And, and I just think when we look at this in a historical perspective, this, this friendship that has formed really in the last 20 years, which is a historical moment between evangelical Christians and Jews is of world historic consequence. We have never, we, the Jewish people have never had friends like this, people who, and friendship in every sense of the word, it's, I mean, Aristotle talked about three kinds of friendship. It's the people you just kind of want to be with. We certainly have that with them. The people that you do things with, we've talked, you've talked so well about two things that just you and I do with Christian missionaries. And then the third kind of friendship is seeking the good. And that's what we're doing together personally with them and, and more uh, nationally and collectively. And this is just uh, it's a great moment of Jewish Christian friendship. And it's such a blessing to be a part of it. It is. It's really incredibly beautiful. And it gives me a lot of joy to introduce our friends to it and help them find that connection. Because like I said, there's so much misinformation and so much fear in the Jewish community about the Christian evangelical community. So I think that's been a really positive role that, that you and I have been blessed to be put in to help build those bridges. And I agree, they've been extraordinary friends personally and people to people, wonderful advocates for Israel. And I'm just thankful that they're in our lives. Absolutely. And whenever one of the missionaries from Africa comes to New York and uh, or one of the pastors, often through Eagle's Wings or sometimes through CBN that comes to New York and they want to meet us. We always invite them for dinner in our home so that our kids can get to meet them and that our kids can get to be inspired by them and to see this is what it means to walk in God's ways. I mean, what a blessing it is to have one's children get to know people like John Fielder and Bill Rhodes and Tom Katina. I mean, yeah. And actually I was just listening to your, your podcast with uh, our good friend, Dr. Rick Hodes. And it's always a pleasure to have him in our house. And now Rick's Jewish. Yeah, I know Rick's Jewish. So that's kind of off topic, but it's, but he, but he has the same spirit as the rest of them. Absolutely. So 99% of them are Christian, but Rick is extraordinary. And having ourselves as well as our children who have a lot more life to live out than us, see these people, especially the, the medical missionaries and see what choices they've made in their life is really amazing to be able to give our kids that perspective on what it could look like for them either to do something similar or something just in the same spirit of really giving themselves over in service to God. That's right. And uh, it's a blessing to be married to you and to have such friends that we've been able to bring into our home together. So, Well, thanks for having me on The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you for making me The Rabbi's Husband. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me and for, and for proposing to me. 